Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One of the really underlying strong points in this book for me is to start using the word therapeutic differently than we normally do. To see that, that maybe our politicians could speak therapeutically at the right time, not always, and certainly I don't mean pretending to be therapists. That's not the point at all. It's to be it's to speak caringly in a way that can help people move ahead and deal with the current obstacle. The Medicine Path Podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project. So please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I welcome back Thomas Moore for the second time on the podcast. On this occasion, we discuss some of the subjects he covers in his most recent book, Soul Therapy, The Art and Craft of Caring Conversations, which is a manual for caregivers of all kinds, therapists, psychiatrists, ministers, friends, and lovers. This was such a rich and deep conversation that I'm hesitant to try and sum it up with a bunch of bullet points. So let me just say that whether you're a professional caregiver or simply someone who cares about others, this book and this conversation offer a treasure trove of soulful wisdom and sage advice from one of my favorite authors and teachers. In this conversation, as in our previous talk, we mentioned James Hillman quite a few times. I've come to see Thomas and James's work as very complementary to each other, where Hillman's work inspires me to continually question everything the psychotherapy mainstream holds up as truth. Thomas reminds me of why I love doing soul work with people in the first place. 
where Hillman takes me on a hermetic flight of fancy, more brings me back down to earth. I think both movements are absolutely necessary, so I'm deeply grateful for Thomas's incredible gift for drawing on a wealth of ideas from a vast range of sources and showing us how to put them into the essential practice of caring for the soul of individuals in the world. In soul therapy, as in most of his work, Thomas reminds us that what is really essential for good therapy to take place isn't the learning of complex psychological theories or acquiring an exhaustive knowledge of Greek myth, although those things can certainly help, but rather, at its core, good therapy is about something much more simple and essentially human, and that is cultivating an attitude of friendship and genuine care for another person. If you want to show your gratitude for the work I do to bring conversations like this one into the world, you can rate and subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, or make a financial contribution to help keep it going. You can find out more by visiting medicinepathpodcast.com or brianjames.ca. If you just want to reach out with a private message, you can find me on Instagram at revealingthesoul or send me an email at hello at brianjames.ca. Okay, that's all for now. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Thomas Moore on The Medicine Path. I'm here with Thomas Moore. Thomas, uh, it's so great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks so much for giving me your time. I'm really glad to be back with you. I enjoyed so much talking to you last time. Good. Well, um, I invited you back on the occasion of the release of a new book called Soul Therapy. And uh, I believe you mentioned it at the end of our previous conversation. And I've been anticipating it ever since. And uh, Maybe I'll just start by saying thank you for writing this book. It's uh, I'm finding it really great. It just feels a bit like the kind of mentorship from afar that I was looking for. Some, you know, your writing really helps me focus back in on what is important uh, in the professional therapeutic life, but also the everyday therapeutic relationship. Exactly. Yeah, maybe uh, if you could just tell us, like, what led you to write this book at this time? Well, I was a lot of things. I've I've been a therapist for 35 years or so, maybe more. Um, So I've been doing this a long time. I wrote Care of the Soul out of my experience of therapy. That was 30 years ago. But... It wasn't very practical. It wasn't really about the, wasn't focused on the life of the therapist. And then um, after that book came out, I was invited to teach on Cape Cod in in Massachusetts um, for 18 years. I I taught there. I taught to therapists of all different kinds, psychiatrists mainly, but also other, you know, social workers and medical people, a lot of different people who counsel others. And they came there f- 
for their, uh, their continuing education credits. And, uh, and I taught them and I, I enjoyed it very much. And I thought I learned a lot about the life of a therapist. And so that was one of the reasons I decided to write this book because I have that experience and it's in me. I, I don't teach there anymore. But uh, that, that, that program doesn't exist anymore. But uh, I felt it was time to write up what my concrete experience of what it's like to be a therapist that might be of use to other people. Hmm. Yeah, I found it, I find it, you know, I'm listening to it now, uh, I find it incredibly practical and, and relevant. Um, you know, you have a, a great gift for taking some of these heady concepts and bringing them down to earth. And one of the things I really appreciated about it was your kind of openness in sharing some of your own experience. Um, you know, I heard a, a bit of Irvin Yalom in there, just that kind of willingness to be open and transparent about what it's like as a therapist. Was he an inspiration uh, to you? Yes. Yes, he was. I read uh, a couple of his books uh, before writing this one. I also read Carl Rogers again. I was trained mm. in, in Rogerian uh, therapy when I was, oh. you know, younger, a person. And so I reread I re some Carl Rogers. I read uh, Yalom because I like the way Yalom especially um, is available to his reader and doesn't hide behind a lot of technical concepts, but is obviously very intelligent about it. So uh, I, I think that uh, I decided to write this book in a more relaxed fashion. So it, I, it worried me a little bit because I'm used to writing quite formally and I want everything to be correct. And and uh, I, I'm very focused on style. In this case, I gave that up some to some extent. I wasn't sure what would happen. And even now I'm not sure about it because I kind of like the more formal essay form, but uh, I hope that people will be able to read this and, and uh, make it their own more easily. Mm -hmm. Well, it definitely feels that way to me. And um... I just really appreciate it. It sounded a lot more like your own personal voice. And I was wondering if that was, um, a, you know, a result of where you are now in your life that, uh, you know, I got the sense that it was just like, all right, you know what, I'm just going to let it all hang out at this point. I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, I don't know because I've started a new book and it's quite formal. Well, <laughs> there's the compensation, right? <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. You know, I can't. I can't second guess myself about those things. Um, I think the point was I wanted to write to people in a way that they could uh, listen and hear and not be confused or uh, interfered with by too, by being too technical or too formal in style. The other thing about this book that I still don't know, I still don't know the answer to my, my, my quandary is at the very beginning, I wanted to write two books. I wanted to write to therapists and I wanted to write to ordinary people, how they could mm. be therapists. I thought it would make, make a nice book to 
I was thinking of the title, um, The Therapist in You, something like that. But then I thought, well, I'm not going to write two books on therapy. I'm just going to write one. But I want to write to both people. I wonder if I can do it in one book. <laughs> so I tried it, and I tried to address both, uh, both people, uh, both the professional therapist and the ordinary person who, in certain moments, uh, can serve as a, a listening you know, factor in someone's life. So uh, I ended up, that's what I ended up doing. And I try to address each one as I speak so they know who I'm talking to. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that and how you um, help the lay person who just wants to be a help to their friends and family or coworkers, how you help them understand some of the more complicated uh, psychological concepts that uh, can be relevant in everyday relationships. Um, one of the, so I love that you've brought those together. So it's not two books because uh, I kind of walk in both worlds. You know, I I try to um, have all my relationships be kind of therapeutic relationships. You know, as best I can. Um, one of the one of the terms that you use to help define the role of the helpful friend is anamkara, which is uh, a, a term that I really love. And I wonder maybe if you could just talk a little bit about that concept. Yeah, I began hearing that that phrase in Ireland. I spent a lot of time in Ireland in my life. I I started going there when I was 19, lived there for two years. And since then, I've been back countless times and uh, I have relatives there. So Ireland's a place that is really home to me. I haven't been there now because of COVID in a while. I really miss it. So um, I heard the term Anamkara, uh, used by different sorts of people, just ordinary people on the street. And mm. it's a term that the Irish know, know quite well. Mm. You know, the, the Irish, so many of them speak Irish. And uh, so it's, it's very familiar. So as I understand it, and I'm no scholar about it, but as I understand it, Anamkara was used, especially in the early days of, uh, of Irish monasticism. I mean, going way back, you know, in the Middle Ages. It was used uh, of a special kind of friendship where uh, a, a person who's a friend is not only, not only a companion and someone you want to be with, but it's, you, it, uh, if you are the Anamkara, you relate to that person like with some responsibility or some interest in their welfare and their their way of dealing with life in the world and they're getting along in the world. So you take that on to, to I don't mean, I wouldn't mind to use the word help. That's not a nice word for that, but it's mm -hmm. more like being a companion that is aware of that need each of us has to get along in life and deal with obstacles. So the Anamkara does that. The word means soul friend. So uh, that's, um, you know, I thought that's a pretty good description of, of what someone is who's a, a therapist in quotation marks. That's what I use throughout the book. I put it in quotation marks if it's a, not a professional therapist. And I kind of like that now. I think of friends in quotation marks. Therapists <laughs> in quotation marks. Yeah, and, well, when I was listening to it, because I wasn't seeing the text, I was thinking yeah. sm small T therapist versus big T therapist. Yes, yes, same idea. Yeah, that's right. Same idea. Although I use the word, I mean, I just to be technical, I 
I use the capital T therapist for the archetypal therapist in both. Uh -huh. In other words, there's something there's something in us that can we can call on within us to do the work. And I would put that as the capital T therapist, really the, the uh, kind of the therapist inside of us. I don't like to put it that way. I wouldn't put it that way inside. I really mean like the archetypal mythic, larger sense of therapist that we that we take on when we speak that way to people. Hmm. Could you talk about some of the qualities you think that inner therapist has that are essential to the help, helping relationship or therapeutic relationship? Well, there are a lot of things. I think one is uh, an interest in human life, a real interest. I, for me, the word interest is an important word. I make. I, I think it's one of the erotic words. It means that you you uh, you have a desire. You have a real uh, a cur deep curiosity about something. So, I think if uh, first of all, if you have someone, and there are a lot of you know, not everybody, but most people seem really interested in exploring what human life is all about and how it works and how we manage it, that kind of thing. Ultimately becomes a philosopher who is supposed to be a lover of wisdom who, and wisdom is kind of a knowledge that helps you get along in the world. And that's exactly what I think a good therapist has, he has wisdom in that sense. So as a philosopher and uh, the word therapy has been around for a long time and it emphasizes the care, it's a heart word. It's not a mind word. It's not about analyzing anybody. So hmm. if you if you want to analyze your friend, you're not doing therapy as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Um, it's a care heart word. If you're caring for your friend, that's, that's the whole point. So I think that's one attitude that's important. Another is that if you have the capacity to hold back on your impulse to give advice or to treat the other person as another version of yourself, or try to steer them in your direction instead of their own direction. Right. The if I was you, this is what I would do. Yeah, that's that right. Impulse, yeah. Well, yeah. you're not me, and I'm not you. Well, my advice to you is, you know, that that kind of thing. That is really not therapy either. That's not caring for your friend. That's uh, that's something else. And I got. I've already gotten a little bit of trouble in using the word friend throughout the book. Hmm. Um, some psychiatrists have told me that the, you, you really can't do therapy with your friend, but they're taking it too literally. I don't mean it that way. I mean, uh, a manner of, how would I put it? A style of relationship that's rooted in, the, in, in deep friendship, but is not the same as this is my friend. Uh, it's, friendship is the, is the way of relating as opposed to something else, like it's not business or it's not doctor or something like that. It's not analyst, it's it's friend basically. And just as let's say in a marriage, you'd say that if a married couple, if they're really friends, that really helps their, their relationship. But obviously they're not just friends. There's something else going on there, but friendship is a quality that can be part of the overall relationship. And that's what I mean by friendship and therapy. Mm -hmm. Do you think that has something to do with Carl Rogers or Carl Rogers's idea of uh, unconditional positive regard? I think that has a lot to do with it. Yes, uh, I've never lost that. I I still 
conjure up Carl Rogers when I, in certain circumstances in therapy, especially when there's a lot of emotion or where things aren't moving at all. I think that Carl Rogers approach was really very effective. And, and I uh, studied it like for, for a couple of years where I had uh, the experts, uh, um, you know, looking over me, you know, looking over my shoulder as I did my, my work, my practicum, and they would tell me, make sure that I was doing the Rosarian thing, right? So I really got that bounded into me in a way. And I like it. I actually like it quite a bit. And um, I see a close relationship between Carl Rogers and Mr. Rogers, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, so I kind of, I can put that kind of a, put that kind of a personality at work. And, uh, and I like it, but it's not the, it's not really the main thing I do. The main thing I do is I'm, I'm, I'm interested in bringing together my background as a Catholic monk, that whole spiritual work I did there and reading, tremendous reading and spirituality and guidance. And I put together my studies in, in Jungian psychology, which were quite extensive. And I still continue to read Jung daily. And then my relationship with James Hillman, who developed what he called archetypal psychology. I felt he was the most brilliant of all the psychology people I, met, I ever knew. And so I, I put all that together. And uh, that to me is, uh, is the main, uh, the main uh, portal for my work. And, uh, and Carl Rogers is in the background. Mm. Yeah, when you made that connection to Mr. Rogers, I just had an image <laughs> of Mr. Rogers tying up his shoes and saying, mm, life's pretty risky, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Before he heads out the door. <laughs> well, you know, he was really, he really was a therapist uh, for children and for adults too. I mean, people grew up and they still think about him, those who, who were able to watch him. And um, that's one of the really underlying strong points in this book for me is to, is to re start using the word therapeutic differently than we normally do to see that, that maybe our politicians could speak therapeutically at the right time, not always. And certainly I don't mean pretending to be therapists. That's not the point at all. It's to, be, it's to speak caringly in a way that can help people move ahead and deal with the current obstacle. That's the whole thing. Hmm. So I, I can imagine doctors talking to their, their patients with some therapeutic uh, uh, concerns in mind. And almost anybody, I've talked to people in business who are very concerned about their employees and they would like to be able to talk to them and just give them some encouragement, but they feel they have to be qualified. So I think there's a kind of paranoia at large uh, in the Western world, especially, uh, where people think that they can't talk to somebody seriously because they're not qualified. Yeah, it's so true. Like everything's been professionalized, yeah. including these roles that for for all of human history were just part of our everyday existence. So the shaman or the kind of the pastoral counseling that would happen around a, a fire or, you know, while we're eating dinner or something, you know? Well, yes, I, I, uh, I also point out the therapeutic role of parents. That, that they, should, they could also become a bit, just a tad more sophisticated 
about how to speak therapeutically to their children. I think it would make a huge difference. Mm. Um, you, throughout the book, you invoke different um, Greek gods and goddesses to illustrate different qualities of that therapeutic relationship. And you know, I can't help but notice today is Mercury's day. It's a good day for us to be communicating over the yeah. airwaves. Yes, it is. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of Mercury Hermes in the therapist? Sure. By the way, I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, today Mercury, uh, the planet, uh, is, is no longer retrograde, which is a good mm -hmm. thing. Astrologers think that's pretty good. I don't know my, for myself. I kind of like retrograde motion in most things myself. I like going backwards. Yeah, well, my wife's an astrologer, and she's she's always pointing out to me how you know things get dumbed down and simplified in like social media or pop culture, and she always points out the kind of benefit of the retrograde and the true nature of what's oh, happening excellent. there. So, oh, yeah, there's some there's some subtlety there. <laughs> I like to hear that. Uh, so, your question was the role of Mercury or Hermes in the book. Well, how does uh, Mercury show up in the therapist, in the therapeutic relationship? Oh, in so many ways. Uh, he's not always there. That spirit of Mercury, we're talking about the spirit of Mercury, who was known by the Greeks as Hermes. And uh, he, he was known for centuries as Hermes the thief. Because according to his story in mythology, uh, the first day he was born, he stole his brother's cattle and very in a very clever way by tying branches to their feet so they couldn't be noticed and backing them out of the pasture. I mean, he's a clever guy. Right. That's so the, the sticks were on, on the, um, the oxen or feet, so you wouldn't see the footprints. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And then backwards so that you wouldn't notice that they had actually been taken out. <laughs> so uh, it's clever. He's clever. That was the first day of his of existence, you know, just born. And he did that. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and he's funny. He's a funny character. It's, so fun and humor are part of Hermes. Uh, I think that's very important in therapy. To me, humor is very, very important. Really, it's such a kind of serious profession, you know, it's like laden, laden with emotion and we're talking about trauma all the time. <laughs> I know. But at the same time, I, I think it's important to have the Hermes point of view there that gives you some distance on what's going on. It's, Hermes does not get into that sturm und drang of the, of the uh, therapeutic uh, heaviness. He's not heavy. He's light. He's got wings in his, in his hat, you know. Hermes has Mercury. He's got these wings. He flies around. He doesn't plot on the ground. Yeah, I think when you talk about the wings on the hat, I think the phrase uh, um, "flights of fancy" comes to my mind. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're. That's good. Yes, your, your imagination and your mind are, are free and are, are uninhibited and moving. Exactly. So he also wears a traveler's hat sometimes, a big round hat, and showing that he's a traveler. So he's always on the road. And roads are important to Hermes. In fact, uh, for the Greeks, apparently they would put a pile of stones to indicate what road you're on or that now you're at someone's house. And those were called Herms mm. after Hermes. So he was the guidepost. He's the guide. He guides you along. 
So I think that's important in therapy, obviously, that we can guide to some extent. We know the signposts. We know what to look for, uh, therapists. And But we have to have that spirit of Mercury, of Her Hermes with us. It's not something that we can do out of our own personal knowledge and, and education. We, we need that to be able, I think what the, what the therapist has to do is be able to conjure up that spirit of Hermes and bring it into the space uh, of the activity. And that also allows your client to feel that spirit of Hermes, which is not so heavy and uh, where the imagination is always moving and thinking you're always imagining further and not taking things quite so literally. So all of that helps. That's all part of Hermes. Uh, and the lying part is that he is deceptive and always a thief and a liar because when he does steal his brother's cattle, um, his, his Zeus asks him if he stole them and he said, me, I'm just an infant. I couldn't. Yeah. Who, me playing the innocent, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so I, think, uh, I think that that's part of therapy too. You can't, you can't take everything at face value. You have to, you have to see the trickiness of life. You have to be a little bit tricky yourself. Um, you can't be overly sincere. You have to be sincere to some extent, but that's not the only thing you have to be. You also have to be not so sincere to have Hermes present. There's something, so, just a little pause there. Um, you know, when he says like, oh, who me? How could I do that? I'm just a little baby. Well, it's like, well, you're a god, first of all. So, um, but what that brings up for me is the ability to kind of uh, disown certain things in the context of therapy. So not to take uh, not to take ownership of things or not to take credit for everything that comes into the therapy. There's something about that in that story. That's essential, yeah. I think in the book, I, I quote uh, the poet William Blake. I don't remember his exact words, but it's something like... Uh, I am just, I'm only the secretary, the authors are an eternity. Mm. And I apply that to therapy, that I am, as a therapist, I am only the secretary. The real therapist is an eternity. In other words, at another level and uh, outside of time or outside of what's going on, not human, but a spirit, a quality that, uh, that if I have a good relationship to that, that particular quality of life, that spirit, that power in life, then I can then tap into it and, and bring it into being in the space of the therapeutics place and time. And that spirit can be very uh, therapeutic. Hmm. What Carl Jung would call like the great third that would show up when we're in that therapeutic mode with someone yeah. else, right? Well, in his work, in his writing, and by the way, I, I read uh, his volume, the volume of his collective works on psychotherapy two or three times before writing this book. It's very good, has a lot of good insights. Hmm. And um, he, but he always in his alchemical writings always says that the work begins and ends with Mercury. Hmm. And if you understand that, that's, that's, an, that's a really striking thing to say because you might think that therapy would begin and end with some other power, you know, with God, Zeus, uh, 
something very powerful and serious and weighty. The mercury, it's a child. It's like saying it begins with the child and, and, uh, and ends with, the, with mercury, the tricky uh, thief. And uh, so what goes on there is not easy to pinpoint. And you don't just go into it with your rational mind and try to say, I'm going to now, I've got all my theories, I've got all my techniques and I'm going to apply them. There's no Hermes in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been reading um, Hillman's work on Senex and Puer recently. Mm -hmm. And um, seems like there's something of the Puer in the Hermes spirit. Um, and Hillman talks about Puer can be that impulse for us to uh, to move toward the new and to, you know, the beginning of the hero's adventure, kind of, although he would probably bristle at using the word hero. <laughs> Sorry. It's problematical, but it's all right. Well, he didn't like hero or journey, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, uh, yes, I think it's a bit, it's a bit subtle there. Uh, See, what happens, we're speaking mythologically now, and Hillman and I, uh, uh, he, he and I worked very closely together for many years, and he and I, even in our work together, often, and many of many people working with Jungian psychology work with mythology uh, as a living thing. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not a piece of literature out there. It's not a collection of stories. It's a living thing. So Hermes is alive in a way, it's part of our world. So what, what he would, I think what Helmut would say there is that we have the stories of Hermes, which give us the basis of our reflection on him. And they start out when he's a, a one-year-old and he's presented as this young figure. So that, all, that another word for young would be puer. Puer is a Latin word meaning young person could be applied to, mainly applied to a boy, but sometimes applied to women. But certainly the idea is that women have a puer, have a little boy inside them as well. Mm. Inside of them is not a good phrase, but anyway. Um, so Hermes then has a, in mythology, has a puer quality right from the very beginning. He's a puer figure in mythology. So uh, speaking psychologically then, what we'd be saying <clears throat> is that if Hermes is present, there's a poor spirit present, a particular one that's Hermes-like. Not another kind, not Icarus who flies up to the sun. That's a whole different aspect of poor. But the Hermes poor is this tricky thief. Hmm. Well, I, can, I can see how uh, Hermes or Mercury would be there at the beginning of that relationship. It's like you're setting out on a journey impulse toward the new toward growth toward expansion all of that uh, how does it relate to the end of the therapy uh well in in the one way it relates is that there is no end uh, mm. that the end is an illusion it's a fiction as well as the beginning is a fiction because someone says to you i'm here for my first experience of therapy i'm afraid not you've your parents were, I'm sure, therapeutic with you before. So your therapy is not limited to the professional experience of it. It happens in life. It's an aspect of life. So there is no end and no beginning. 
or as they say, you know, Jung often quotes this uh, French medieval song, uh, my, my end is my beginning. My end is my beginning. So that in, in, in an alchemy, you finish one phase of it and that becomes the first part of the next, when you repeat, you know, you go ahead. So the end becomes the beginning. That's how these things work. And I think it's true in therapy. You have a therapy session with somebody, you spend an hour talking to them. That session is ended, you've concluded talking about that, but that becomes the beginning of the next session you have and on and on. Mm -hmm. And so as far as I'm concerned, there's no ending. I never have an ending. I love it. My, my, the people I see drift away. Uh, and I never know if they're coming back and I like that. I don't want any endings. I don't want them saying, well, that's the end of this. No, I don't think so. And it's certainly not in the, the end in the sense that from now on, I'm hoping that what I've done with you will, will keep you alert so that you will continue to be therapeutic the rest of your life. Mm. I love that. And I really appreciated that perspective uh, as you presented in the book, because it's something I've been thinking about as I become more experienced as a counselor is dealing with the endings of things or the, you know, quote unquote, there's your quotes again the quote unquote endings um, and wondering, um, you know, does there need to be a formal end to this part of the therapy? And my intuition has been let people drift away and leave the door open in case they want to come back, but don't, uh, you know, I never felt quite right to kind of formalize that. And I know some people say that you should do that. You should have a, a closure on that part of the therapy or whatever, but you know, so it's been a question in me, and I've just been following my intuition with it. It's like you said, just let people drift away, and, and then sometimes they drift back a few months later, a few weeks later or something. Maybe they never do. Um, but I kind of like that openness, and I, I'm, I get this image of all of these people I've been connected to intimately who are just maintaining that connection to them. And if they follow that thread back, uh, wonderful. If not... Wonderful. That's right. So the ending is is not, you just don't take it literally. You can have an ending, but it's not literal. It's not actual. Uh, and I get that from music because I often refer to music and, and this question because I, I'm trained in, in music theory. And in music, um, any song, uh, you, you, you have a part of the song where you come to what they call a cadence. It means it just sort of, slows down, it comes to a bit of an end. But that's not, then it picks up right away. Almost any song does that. It's like waves, little waves. Yeah, they're like um, punctuation at the end of a sentence. They're punctuations. Or... But then often there's a big punctuation at the end. In, in concert music, there might be a huge, you know, drums and cymbals and everything coming down in a crash at the end. They want to make sure you know it's over. Because <laughs> you can get up and is, leave now. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. The other endings were provisional. So that's the way I, I understand the ending in therapy. It's provisional. It's a cadence. It's, it's not the final cadence. The final cadence, I don't know if that will be. I don't even know if there is a final cadence ever, but, you know. Yeah, knows? maybe we'll be doing therapy in the next world or something. Who knows? <laughs> we'll have a big group therapy. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Um, you know, because you do blend the the professional and the everyday therapy that's possible, 
Um, I think it'd be helpful to talk about the therapeutic container or vessel and something about boundaries there, because, you know, as I do um, training in different counseling approaches and therapies, uh, there's a real kind of uptightedness around maintaining the therapeutic relationship and the boundaries around that and a lot of fear of intimacy or openness. Um, uh, and I, you know, I'm hearing James Hillman in my head right now saying Eros needs to be present in the therapy, but yes. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that vessel and how we can honor that what's healthy in the professional and the everyday therapy. Uh, okay. In the professional therapy, I think it's, I think that the idea of a vessel is heightened because, um, as I understand it anyway, professional therapy is really a very special, uh, a special activity. And it, uh, like anything that's special, it needs its a temenos. A temenos means the sacred space, the limit, the, uh, the boundaries of the sacred space. So let's say a temple. The temenos might be outside the temple, but it'll be a space clearly that is separate from the secular space. I think that to me, the clearest example, you go into a church. I don't care if you're a believer or not, it makes no difference. You, you're just, let's say you're walking on the streets of Toronto or New York or some, maybe Vancouver, and you, and you, uh, you pass a big cathedral. And you'll notice how big the doors are if, they're if it's a traditional cathedral. They have these big doors often in a Gothic arch or a Roman arch. They're thick, they have layers, they show different layers of the, of the, of the door or the ar arch. All of that to help you make the transition from going outside in the ordinary world into the special realm, the holy space of the interior, the inner sanctum. And usually those doors are quite effective. They simply are effective. They're heavy. You have to push them open. You have to go through a big doorway and you get inside. It's silent. It's quieter. It smells different. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's another space where things can happen that couldn't happen just a few feet away outdoors. Mm -hmm. So that's the creation of a temenos. Churches are very good at doing it. And I think a lot of other aspects of culture need a temenos and would really be well advised to have good doors. I think hospitals are an example because you're entering a space of healing or health. It's different from the outside world. And if your space or it was, was dedicated to that, I think it would be more effective at the healing process. If your hospital interior is secular, you, you don't have much of a chance, really. Mm -hmm. You really mm -hmm. can't heal. So it's the same thing in therapy, psychotherapy. I don't, I'm not suggesting that you have to have a big church door uh, in order to get into your room. But you do, it wouldn't hurt to have a door and some way of indicating that you have entered a special space, a special space of some kind. It's not the same space that you use for everything. It gets really handy if you go to a therapist and you go into that therapist's room. And it's, you know, it's a dedicated room to either only therapy or only reflective activity. Like for me, if you come into my space, you're going to be in the space of a writer and a therapist, nothing else. It's not a business room. Mm -hmm. It's a room of, of uh, writing and uh, therapy. Mm 
I think that that helps. And I and so I put things in my room that are going to evoke the therapy. A lot of statues, as Freud did, statues of the gods, and especially the gods of healing. But I also have Thomas More, Saint Thomas More, in my in my room, uh, and uh, uh, paintings of my wife. And I think if you go in there, you see that it's a special space, and that I've entered a temenos. If you could, then that's something you feel, you sense. It's not abstract. It's not in your head. You feel it or you don't. Mm-hmm. So that's one way to create the vessel. Another way is by paying for the time. So the payment might be like in the, the old days, people would bring a chicken for sacrifice to the temple of Asclepius, but we don't bring chickens anymore. We bring, um, we bring money. That's fine. Money is a, is a substitute for other things and helps create the temenos and also supports the temple the temple where you are and the priest of the temple priestess so um all of that makes a lot of sense to me as creating the temple uh, the uh, temenos the vessel if you want to call it that and um other things it might be assurance that uh give assurance that's real that uh, what's said here is private that you're you are capable of maintaining uh, maintaining the uh, privacy of the conversation, and if uh, if you do that, you are making your vessel even tighter. Mm-hmm. Making that explicit, I think, is a good idea. Um, and there are other things too you could do. I'm sure that I just don't think of at the moment mm-hmm. to help create a vessel between you that is felt that's real. And it, uh, it, it, uh, in that, you're like in an alchemical chamber where things can happen. Yeah. One of the things I've been doing since I've uh, been doing more sessions with people over Zoom is, uh, you know, it occurred to me after doing it for a little while that I wanted more of that uh, temenos feeling because I imagined that if the person came over, they would come into my little room. I would light a candle, I'd burn some incense, and there would be that whole sensory experience that, okay, this is a special place, right? We're going to do some, we're going to shift into a different mode here. So what I started to do was at the beginning of the sessions is light a candle, burn some incense, and encourage the person on the other end to do that as well and try to create that space between us regardless of where they are in the world. That sounds really good. Yeah, sounds very, very good. Those uh, those activities like that, things you do like that, as I said about the doors, can be very physical and very effective. I think it's also valuable to have more subtle uh, ways. It's as though the vessel does have that part of it. And I, and I advocate that so strongly that we do make it physical. At the same time, I, in this book, I wanted to point out that the vessel also has these subtle, like the way you use language, the way you comport yourself, the way you conduct your business, all of those things also add to the, to the structure of your vessel. Mm-hmm. Now, so taking that idea and transferring it over to the, the quote unquote therapist, you know, I think about 
when we ask someone out for a coffee or a drink? You know, is that a kind of unconscious, subtle way of creating a, a sacred space for a deeper conversation? I think it could go either way. Uh, sure. I yeah. think the, the intention probably is, yes. And food, I think, does, uh, certainly does uh, intensify the sacredness of the place and the uh, depth of the, allows communication, to talking, or drink, too. Um, the only problem is that sometimes if you go to a restaurant, let's say, or a coffee shop, it is it doesn't have enough of the sacred space that you need or the privacy that you need. So you have to take in a lot of different things into account. The trouble is if you go, if you say, let's go to a, I know a place where there's a room with no windows, we can just sit there undisturbed. That probably won't foster communication either. <laughs> That's yeah. too literal that way. So I think you just have to be artful about it and figure out what would really be, what would be a place to go that will give us our privacy, our specialness. This is not just going for a coffee. Um, but at the same time is uh, is not overly uh, precious. Well, yeah, not formalized. Yeah. Yeah, I think about... Um, the kind of spaces that we have access to here in North America and a real dearth of those, those kind of public spaces that do have some soul in them, like, you know, where you can find a dark corner in the pub or in the coffee shop, you know, I'm remembering uh, James Hillman talking about this story about, I think it was like a, a worker in, in New Delhi who after a long day of sweeping the streets, he would ride his bicycle, you know, 50 kilometers across the city to go have coffee with his friends because they love that conversation so much. You know, I think about things like that. And I think about the kind of design of spaces in North America. And it just doesn't evoke that for me. No, it's funny. We were talking about Ireland in Ireland, uh, and I like in England to some extent as well, that going to the local, the pub, is not like going to a bar. I don't know where it is where you live, but where I live, a bar is, is a little darker place. It's not really a place of communication as much as it is in England and Ireland, Scotland. Um, I would, uh, so, you know, people are fortunate that the, that they have places they can go. Now, that's often those places are often very communal and be hard to find a quiet spot. But they do have places in those pubs called snugs. You know, they're just little, little usually little places with a curtain or a door on them, so you can go in and just a, maybe five or six people can get in them and be cut off from the rest of them. I've gone into those places for private conversations. I've gone into a snug before many times actually for conversations. On the other hand, I also, and I think I mentioned this in the book, I had a client years ago who was in another state and I mean, another location and he had to fly to see me. He really wanted to come to do this therapy with me. So he would fly in and I forget why, why he couldn't come to my, my place, but I would meet him at the airport and we would find a quiet spot at the airport and it was really fine. 
we were able to do excellent work in a, just in a corner of the airport. So when I talk about vessels, sometimes you'd have to make it with, you know, kind of just with the little bit you've got, you try to make that space special. Mm. Yeah, and talking about those more subtle qualities, you do go into that more deeply in the book, but um, you talk about the the way that we're speaking, the attention that we place on the words that we're using, because in that sacred space, in that context, the power of our language is elevated or amplified. Um, could you speak a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, what I personally, what I do, I don't know if anyone else would thinks of it this way, but I consider the speech of therapy almost like being on stage. It's not natural. It's not just ordinary language. We're not just speaking the way we speak in everyday life. It's a special communication and um, or conversation. And so I figure it begins with the first time for the first engagement with the person when you first meet them coming to the very end when you when they're going away that it's a it's a bit of a drama and what we're doing there is I think when you speak to the soul you are speaking uh, in, in a special way that has to address the soul in that ordinary life so I'm very cautious of everything I, I say from the beginning to the end. And uh, cautious, I don't mean anxious about it, but I'm aware that it's not the same as regular life. Mm. Careful. Yeah. Mm? You're careful. In yeah, I'm saying. careful and, yeah, I'm careful. And uh, I, I, I interpret what I hear and I, speak in such a way that I know that this is going to have more power. Each word will have more power because of the context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you talk about that, how um, when we're in that therapist role, anything we say can really set the the patient or the friend off, uh, depending on, you know, what they're carrying from their past history it could just be like the thing to really trigger them. So just that's honoring right. honoring that, you know, that that's what's going on. Yes, yes, because everything's at a heightened, heightened level. And that's good because that means it will address the soul and not just be taken literally. It'll have a deeper resonance to it. But that means it also could be, uh, it could cause some trouble because it it's in that deeper place. Mm-hmm. Something else that you raise that might be completely unfamiliar to um, anyone who's not a trained psychotherapist is the concept of transference. And, uh, you know, that's, that's been one of the concepts that's been hardest for me to grasp. I think I'm getting it more and more as I get more experienced in the counseling work that I do, you know, I'm seeing it more uh, clearly. But, uh, could you, I, and I think the way that you explain it in the book is one of the clearest, most uh, relatable ways I've ever read. So maybe if you could speak about that, because I, I think it is really important and it does show up in all of our relationships. It does. So it's a very classic idea. Uh, Freudians, especially psychoanalysts, have 
classic psychoanalysts especially have written a great deal about transference. Jung wrote a lot about it. He wrote a book, a, a, a special book, a book dedicated to the idea of transference. It's called The Psychology of the Transference. I've read it maybe 25 times, I think, because I never quite get everything out of it. It's, all, it's entirely alchemical. So if you don't know any alchemy, it'd be pretty hard to follow. But I think it's quite interesting. And uh, Hillman's written, uh, referred to a transference here and there. I don't, I don't remember him writing specifically, addressing transference very much, but I could be wrong. Um, but anyway, uh, the way I see it, and this is following Hillman, is that when two people get together, no matter when or where, it's like a cloak, they bring clouds of fantasy with them. They're just clouds, they're like in a fog, they're full of, full of fantasy, of different colors and everything, because so much, so many different images from all different times of their own life and people they've met and things they've gone through. It's just all with us when we meet somebody. Yeah, even like films and books we've read. Anything. It's all there, it's all right? There. It's all there, especially books we've read, because we'll have ideas and themes and characters that will be with us. Well, right now, I think I'm having an Obi-Wan Kenobi transference to you. <laughs> uh, well, you know, that the, one. Yeah, the wise old man, <laughs> right? Oh. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we can, have all, we can have all kinds. Of, so we have all that potential, but you have to understand with transfers, there's a lot of, a lot going on. It's that simple. Now, the way sometimes the way people describe transference, and I think it's legitimate as far as it goes, is that uh, we have had very special relationships with our parents as children, and those relationships stay with us. I think that's true. The, those patterns, there are the first patterns of our lives, and they really have a big influence on who we are, and they do stay with us. So the classical idea would be that it's about therapy. So you go to a therapist, let's say you, you go to a male therapist, you're a man or a woman, you go to this male therapist. And right away, you start relating to that therapist as your father. I mean, that's kind of a classical way of looking at it. And you, what you've done is transferred patterns and, and images of your father to the, to the therapist. And the idea is that, in, in therapy then, is that the therapist can, can deal with those transferences effectively and is skillful with them and therefore can help a person not be so uh, limited by those fantasies of the father or the mother could be a mother thing too. But what I'm describing here is much broader than that. So it's not just about mother and father and it's not just about bringing over your mother and father into the current your personal mother and father into the current relationship. Jung himself says very, very clearly, and I quote him in the book, he says that what we transfer from the past to the present is not our parents, but the images of father and mother that we first met with our parents. That's a different thing. So it's those images that we then transfer and find in an person in the current, in our present lives. We might transfer, I would say you might transfer your brother, your uncle, your grandfather, some teacher, a person you met somewhere. 
you you see something that reminds you or that excites this older fantasy of yours and it it has a it has a role in your relationship the current relationship it influences the current relationship like you relate to this current person in ways that you related to the person that you met before but as I'll repeat this, Jung says it's not the person in the past you transfer, it's not personal, it's the archetypal figure that you encountered in the past that you now meet in this other person, qualified and colored by your experience, perhaps of your mother or father or somebody else, but it's it's archetypal primarily. Yeah, so one of, you know, the way I experience it quite a bit is it's not actually, and you can correct me on this if this is if there's a difference between projection and transference. But what I often find is that um, it may not be the qualities that my own father embodied, but it could be maybe the qualities that he didn't embody that I'm then projecting on an older yeah. man or teacher. Yes. I will say to you, I don't mean to be fussy, but um, I will be. <laughs> um, Hillman says that uh, we don't project, the psyche projects. And I think what he meant to say that, and what I do, I, if you notice in, in the book, I'm very cautious with my use of language there. So what I say is that we meet those figures later on. We don't project them. We meet those archetypal figures within somebody else. Instead of thinking that I'm doing all this projecting, it's me, it's personal coming out of me onto them. No, these archetypal figures have an existence of their own. This is sort of a platonic aspect of this psychology. They have a kind of existence of their own. And so mother and father, we might, I might meet father, the fathering that goes on in life, I might meet anywhere and anybody. And so that's what I might do, that I might find this fathering once again. And you might bring over some of that stuff from your own father, because you met it, you met the father there pretty powerfully, and that might influence how you uh, see the father in this case. But there are probably a lot of other influences too. So uh, that what but the key is that. If two people talking to each other, one trying to be of some assistance, and you've got to, you have to know that this person will probably see you as somebody, a wise old man, if you want, you know, somebody, and that will be a transference. See the difference between that and projection? Mm, I think so. It's why it's so hard for me to wrap my head around because there is there's <laughs> that subtlety there. <laughs> well, you have to. I think the start. Uh, one thing Hillman says: it's a matter of we, not it's a matter of they, not we. It's them. Help me out with that. <laughs> okay, so it's the I meet. Okay, in my father, I have I have discovered for good or bad. I've discovered a certain way in which the human possibility of father in life finds, uh, you know, finds expression and is embodied. I see that in my father. But this idea of the father, I might find a whole different aspect of that in somebody else. Mm -hmm. You know, this person might 
relate to me in such a way that I feel fathered, but it's not at all like what my personal father did. So we're, we're talking there about a fathering that goes on. It's more like a verb, you know, like a fathering that's taking place. And that is, I'm not doing, there's no projection involved. Of, I'm mm-hmm. I get you. on somebody. I am meeting the father. Another aspect of else. another aspect of the father. Yes. Yeah. In that way, um, we're often attracted to people who carry some of those missing qualities uh, to help us fill out that image of fathering. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, and to have a broader, greater experience of fathering. You know. And, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Well, Hilma would say that that's one of the purposes of therapy. Therapy can help you expand so that you're not limited to that and suffering that particular father image. Right. Yeah. It reminds me of that thing that Jung said about uh, it's not so much that we solve our problems as we outgrow them by um, expanding our capacity and experience. So the more fathering you experience out in the world, the the more diminished that father complex in you or like the resentment toward the father more diminished that becomes in contrast to your expanded view of fathering. It's a liberation, really, and often to find another kind of fathering that is not so Mm. difficult. Oh, it's a blessing, you know. And I had a relationship like that with one of my teachers. Um, I knew nothing of transference, even less than I know now. Um, uh, But looking back, I can see that there he was... uh, he was offering another experience of fathering, uh, able to relate to me on the spiritual level and things like that, and, and offer me a blessing and a kind of mentorship that uh, my own father couldn't do just because my own father had different interests and capacities. So in, in receiving that from someone else, you know, I think around that time, it was when I started to drop all the resentment toward my own father because of his limitations and all of that, you know, all the things I didn't get from him. And then I could focus on all of the, the really great things that I did get from him. Well, Hillman uh, also made a big point in, in several of his writings and, and in his speeches, his talks, that the, um, the absent father and the weak and ineffective father can give us a great deal as well. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, I was talking to a client too, and he's at the point where he's not able to see a lot of the good stuff that he got from his father. But even in the kind of negative lesson that he gets from his father, you know, the, you know, his father not waking up and becoming more conscious and fulfilling his life's dreams and all of that, even that is a valuable lesson that his, uh, his father is carrying for him and living for him. Like his father is suffering in order that he could get that that lesson, even if it's in a kind of negative way. Yeah, so Hillman thought that he he, he wrote about it quite a bit that uh, that the father who is not able to do much and and is uh, empty and and uh, ineffective can be useful because you you do learn a great deal from that. You get a great deal from that uh, negativity. So he didn't want to just say we have to have wonderful fathers. That's not the point. That uh, the father is there and has good side and bad side and fullness and emptiness. And uh, you draw 
a lot from that. And then you, it, it affects the way you deal with other people then who seem to have to, to evoke the father in your future. And also if you have, a, you have the role of being father in the future, then uh, it will be affected by that. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, something else that I want to touch on, I know I'm watching the time, but uh, something else that um, may feel, oh, how would I say this? So uh, the whole chapter you've got on symptoms and this particular approach to working with symptoms, and you mentioned uh, Patricia Berry, who's uh, James Hillman's first wife, I believe, but uh, who's kind of a unsung hero of archetypal psychology. Uh, I think that would be really important to talk about that because it is a unique approach to working with symptoms. You know, at this point, I don't, I don't know who said it first. I remember when I was living in Dallas and hanging out with uh, 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 Jim and Pat and I mean, the Hillmans and and uh, a, lot, a lot of other colleagues. I don't know where it really came up. I, I don't know if Philman said it or if uh, Pat Berry did it. She wrote about it, certainly. Um, and he, he mentions it in, in some of his books. Uh, we called it going with a symptom. That's what we referred to all the time. I remember once doing a, a, a workshop with Hillman. He and I led a workshop there. I, I don't remember where it was, but... Uh, we talked a lot about symptoms, and this this came up. We talked a great deal about going with the symptom. Uh, so I know that he was that was his way of looking at it, and uh, I, I've taken it on for myself. I think it's very valuable. The idea of going with the symptom is uh, is a bit mysterious and maybe radical in some ways, in some places. So ordinarily. We have a tendency to want to correct and go to the opposite side of the symptom, the presenting problem. So let's say someone says, uh, I tend to be dependent, too dependent on other people. I need to really get in charge of my life and do what I want to do. Could you help me become more independent? Well, I might say yes, but what I really mean, what I know is that I'm going to go into that symptom of dependency. That's what I'm going to focus on. I'm not going to try to cheerlead this person toward independence and try to find ways in which she could become more independent. Because what that does, it goes against the symptom. And uh, the, the thing is, the way it works is, the way I see it anyway, is that the this is the way Jung describes it as well, that our symptoms really have two parts, two poles. And one tends to be invisible and the other very visible. So dependency might be very visible and problematical, but independence might be present and be more symptomatic as well. Therefore, a lot of times you find people who are kind of weak and passive and dependent can also be very controlling almost without they don't even know it maybe or they uh, they may but they may not and it usually it's not up front it's not clear yeah you know you give that example in the book of the woman who feels manipulated and you talked about how uh, she may be surreptitiously exerting some power and I had a hard time like really grasping how someone who um, is more passive 
and dependent, how they could be kind of covertly asserting their power. Can you give a, a concrete example of how that might show up? Well, I don't, I don't know if you've known people who are quite, quite passive and quiet and kind of let things go. They don't stand up for themselves much. And yet in other circumstances might be very controlling of somebody else, you know, very uh, uh, trying to insistent on them going in certain directions. Uh, you see this sometimes, let's say, in a parent, like a, let's say a mother who is very quiet and doesn't speak up much, but she finds ways to make sure that her kids are really under her thumb. And so maybe her husband as well. And vice versa, it could be the man doing that with the woman. It's usually not very clear. You have to look closely to see it. Mm. The trouble then is if the therapist starts emphasizing this power, you're, all you're doing is making things worse. Mm. Yeah, as you're kind of <clears throat> going deeper into that, I'm thinking about... Um, if someone is very passive in a relationship, and I, this may be my experience, maybe somebody I know, <laughs> but uh, in being very passive about say decision-making, like where are we going to go for, what are we going to do for dinner? Where are we going to go for vacation? Yeah. You're forcing the other person to make the decisions and to take the initiative on things. And so that is a kind of shadow uh, power of some kind, right? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I think the word I was looking for when I brought up this topic uh, was escaping me at the moment, thanks to Mercury, um, is yeah. it seems counterintuitive because when we think, well, I've got symptoms, that's why I go to therapy is to deal with the symptoms, to cope with the symptoms, and pray to God, get rid of the symptoms. <laughs> well, I really try to help that too. I also want to get rid of the symptoms in a way, but I don't believe the best way is by uh, uh, supporting moving into that opposite place from where the symptom, I mean, by supporting by, by, yeah, moving into the opposite place. I don't think that does it. I, so for example, let's say someone who doesn't show, uh, is quite passive, doesn't show much uh, spark, you know, when it comes to living, living his own life. Uh, what we could do in exploring that find out its roots. You always want to find the narrative. That's why my book begins with a couple of chapters on story. Uh, we have to find the narrative. And that helps. That opens it up a bit. And we have material to work with. And when you do that, you find out more about that passivity and that weakness. You find out maybe where, in a way, what the origins are, at least the narrative origins are of it where the person thinks, oh, it was my, my dad who kept putting me down every time I tried to be somebody. That, that's a story I hear a lot. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, that gives it something. But then we, what we can do is the more we know about it, we can find out ways that that person can be more uh, flexible and vulnerable. So passivity 
gets transformed into flexibility and vulnerability, let's say. We use different words because now as we, as we work at this symptom, it changes. It becomes something more positive, something mm -hmm. we can live with anyway. And then when you've got that in place, then the strength is not a reaction against passivity. It, now you can also be really strong because strength and vulnerability are very close to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to be courageous, feel strong in order to be vulnerable. Exactly. To be vulnerable, you gotta be pretty strong. Be willing to take a shot, right? Exactly, exactly. But when you are passive and when your strength only shows itself in trying to control everybody, which isn't real strength, it's fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, what know. do you think? You know, I would think when, um, when something like that comes up, like say passivity, uh, where I immediately get curious is around like, what are you getting from being passive? You know, I always look for like, because I think people always kind of choose <clears throat> these ways of being or behaviors uh, for a certain reason. They, they get something from it. So passivity, what I get is a, a feeling of safety. I don't have to put myself out there and take risks. Other people are making decisions for me, right? So, yeah. yeah. You think there's value in that? Oh, yes. Any Anytime you can take the the presenting the symptom, whatever that is, and can uh, uh, examine it and open it up more, see what it's made of, see what its history is, see what it means to the person experiencing it. Uh, all of that helps a lot because then you've got material that you can work with. It goes back to Jung's idea, which is very uh, another interesting idea that in order for therapy to happen, you need what he called, using alchemical language, prima materia, raw material. You need the raw material. And if all you got are a few ideas in the sense of, the, of your client saying, well, I'm passive, that doesn't really give us any material. That's, a, that's an idea from them, but give me some material. When did this happen? When do you experience it? Who are you when you go through this? What are the different uh, forms of expression it takes? Mm -hmm. Then you get material and then you have something to work with and it becomes more complicated. And when you've got that, you can, you, then you can start seeing, it will begin to change in shape as you do it. Like I said, changing from passivity to flexibility. Mm -hmm. And then the strength part of it is not far away because once you're flexible now, you can be stronger. Right, yeah. Right, so when more kind of assertiveness or decisiveness comes online, they've already got the gift of being able to let go of control. Like that's yeah, that was their right. dominant mode before. So they've already got that skill that's or that right. gift. And now we're just adding to it and that creates that flexibility you're talking that's about, right? right? They come together. Jung called that the mysterium conjunctionis, the mystery of the conjunction. You bring these two things together that were far apart. It's the conjunction that's important, bringing them together. Yeah, well, you know, I've heard that term a million times, but uh, that real world kind of example of how that might be expressed, um, 
helps bring it home for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, you know, before we end, I, I'm studying um, dream tending with Steve Eisenstadt. Yes. Easy, easy for me to say. I still can't say his name. <laughs> Steve at uh, Pacifica. <clears throat> and he, he very much follows uh, James Hillman's way yes, of working with dreams, which is why I chose to study with him. Um, and you talk about dreams in the book. And I think that's another place where we can really do some soul care in everyday life. And it, that it is something that's really been lost in our culture is that that really that daily ritual of waking up and sharing your dream with your your friend or your family member. Right. So this is probably what Steve uh, taught you, but I, I let me say just a couple of things about the dream work then. I think the most important thing is, uh, and this is right out of Hellman, don't, don't come up with a solution to a dream. Don't, don't aim to get a solution. Don't get the final interpretation. Uh, you, can, you can experiment certainly with experimentation, with uh, interpretations of images and things like that. But uh, Jim Hillman was very much against the idea of seeing the dream images as symbols, that one thing stands for another. It's very tempting to, to be totally symbolic about dreams. And uh, his warning, I think, is very helpful because what it comes down to, when two people, let's say, who are not, neither of them therapists or, or dream workers of any kind, when they come together, all they have to do is say, I had a dream last night. And they tell the dream as they had it, as close as they can to the dream. A lot of people just make a generic statement about the dream. That doesn't work. You have to know the, the dream as you had it, as faithfully as you can. And the other person might say, well, it reminds me a little bit of uh, this thing, you know. Or it's not, they're not interpreting the dream or the dream symbols. They're saying, this is what comes to mind when I say, when I hear that dream. And in relation to you, I notice something. I can tell it's your dream because this is what I hear in it. That kind of conversation is really good for dream work, good kind of dream work. The, uh, the other kind, which so many people want to get into, symbol reading and, and you know, knowing like being using all Jungian, it's an anima figure, this is shadow. Um, you know, that all of that tends to get take away from the dream imagery. So what it matter what it is, even the Freudian thing, that's a phallic image, you know, which I say myself, I say, that's fine to say those things, but don't see them as interpretations. Say them, they might be able to give you some idea about the image, but uh, say it and then let it go. Say mm -hmm. it and not... Don't make that your final reading. Keep going at the images and keep them alive. Mm. Yeah, Hillman would often say things. You know, he was great because he was he said things so strongly. Uh, he, he never <laughs> yeah. seemed to have a fear of offending anyone. No, <laughs> in no. fact, he seemed to rejoice in it. Um, but he would say, you know, if the black snake visits you in your dream, as soon as you say black snake equals dark mother or devouring mother, you've killed the snake. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just love that because it honors the the dream image, you know, as a living yes. entity. But, you know, what I might say is that, well, you know, we, we know about a little bit about snakes. We know about the snake in Eden. The Garden of Eden, we know about the snake that was the goddess Klepios of healing. We know that snake. 
we know quite a few snakes in mythology and imagery. They can maybe help us a little bit, but that's but this snake is not one of those snakes. Mm. This is the snake of this dream, and we have to keep that snake alive and not make it into something else. Yeah, that's helpful because I've been trying to find this balance because part of me does find value in looking at what um, images represent symbolically, uh, yeah. but another part of me doesn't want to... Mm, kind of uh, kill the dream in a way, because as soon as I say, oh, that dream is about that, it's like, I'm done with it. I can wipe my hands clean. I can move that's on to the next thing, right? Yeah, that's the trouble. It also gives you a sense of conquering. Right, that heroic, like, I, I've i got this dream figured out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of an ego push, and you don't need that. With a dream, you should leave it quite neutral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, you said something in the book that I really loved. Um, become a priest of the dream world, not its conqueror. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So not like um, Heracles going down into Hades and causing a bunch of trouble yeah. and havoc. <laughs> no, you don't need to bring your sword with you. No, you can, uh, you can come in as a person, like a poet, like an artist like Orpheus, who was a musician, you go down and you, you go down into that realm and you come up singing about it. Mm, yeah, beautiful. Okay, we've got to wrap up, but, um, you know, we've ended up talking about so many kind of male figures in the course of our conversation that uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't invoke Aphrodite, who um, you uh, place in a very central role in therapy. Can you just like give us a few words on Aphrodite and her, her place in therapy. Yes, Aphrodite, known by the Romans as Venus, uh, is, uh, is uh, so important. She is, uh, she is an aspect, uh, it's a kind of an embodiment of what Jung referred to as anima or a soul figure. So she represents a certain way, uh, I think, uh, as a, uh, a psychopomp. Uh, uh, I think it's through Aphrodite and Venus that we could bring soul into our world, certainly into our culture. Uh, our our uh, incredible, complex, and feverish uh, concern about sexuality lets us know that's one of our big symptoms. Let's us know that there's a lot of material there that has to be redeemed. And I think we redeemed that through Aphrodite who is known as the goddess of sexuality and sensuality, beauty, the beautiful aspects of nature, um, a passion, um, relationship to some extent, not marriage really, but uh, a lot of these other things. These are the things that our world is very confused about and acting out all over the place. And uh, Hillman wrote about that a lot, as I have. Uh, Dark Eros is one of my books about uh, the need for the erotic life. And uh, um, I think that Aphrodite then is, uh, the reason I mentioned her as an aspect of anima is that she could be the bridge to soul in our, in our life. That means looking at our sexuality and not, not trying to be so moralistic about it so we come out right with it and feeling okay about it, 
but to um, see its mysteries and what it really is at a deep level and what we're really talking about with our sexuality because we usually think of it too literally and only about what to do, what not to do, rather than to see that. And who to do it with. (laughs) And who to to do do it with. with, Rather than being sexual all the, I agree with Freud that everything we do in life is sexual, that there's a sexual sexual matter uh, dynamic in it. That means Aphrodite is present. So uh, Plotinus, the great uh, philosopher of the soul, uh, said that the the world is full of Aphrodite. You know, I think that's that's where we are. That Aphrodite is there to bring our world to life. Uh, we, if we could, do, I think, because we don't recognize her, we are, in a way, at the mercy of Mars or uh, Aries of the the uh, violence, at mercy of violence, and uh, Aphrodite could could help us with that violence. Mm. Yeah, you spoke about the word, um, or you highlighted the word interest earlier. And it's funny, you know, I'm kind of a student of words. I find words contain so many uh, teachings in them. Um, And I was looking up the word interest the other day. I was doing some writing and I was interested Mm -hmm. in the word interest. And, uh, you know, one of the roots is interesse, which means to the being in between. Yeah, and when you're Latin words, actually, they're just two Latin words, inter est. And I was thinking about the French, but yeah, it's obviously just a reflection of the Latin. But I was thinking, as you're talking about Aphrodite, that uh, perhaps it's Aphrodite who is the being in between. So the one that draws us into relationship with others, relationship with the world, and her quality of uh, appreciation, beauty. Uh, enamored. Um, that's what draws us into relationship with the world and other people. Uh, and and in that therapeutic relationship, so going back to that essence of unconditional positive regard or, or love for the soul of the other. Yes. Yes, we take an interest in our, the, the, that's, a, that's a starting point. We take an interest in the people that we are being there, speaking to therapeutically. We take an interest in them and their lives and their situation. If you don't have an interest, then it, nothing happens. It's, a, it's an erotic word, as you say, it's an erotic word, it's a thing between. So um, they're very closely related to Hermes though. And there we get the hermaphrodite. Which is a, a tune to- oh, I, never, I never even put, you know, I never put that together, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's according to another wonderful archetypal psychologist, uh, Rafael Lopez Pedraza. Um, he says in, in his book on Hermes that, uh, that we need to arrive at the hermaphrodite in order to bring soul to life. That means we have to be there between Hermes and Aphrodite, both of whom are interested in the sense that they are the go-betweens, they're in between. Mm. And, uh, and that it's all based on love and pleasure and desire. It's not about your head thinking it through. It's about having a, a real desire and finding pleasure. An erotic connection with life. That's right. Absolutely, yes. And if I can add, you know, at the end here, uh, one other thought 
that one of my favorites is I uh, I I very much favor the uh, the Greek philosopher Epicurus, who's from which we get our from whom we get our name Epicurus Epicurean, and we mean kind of excessive pleasure, but he was not that. He was interested in desire and pleasure as the basic principle of life. That uh, that we seek pleasure and we ought to seek pleasure, but deep pleasure, soul pleasure. So for him, the great model of pleasure was friendship. Mm. And he was uh, he was a vegetarian. He ate modestly, but eating was important to him. Food was important to him, but not in excess. So to me, to be an Epicurean is to live in this world with its pleasures and take them on. That is that is Aphrodite. And that's Hermes. That's being a hermaphrodite as well, to be Epicurean. And so I, I kind of dedicate my life to that Epicurean uh, principle and, and goal. I feel that uh, um, having life's deep, ordinary pleasures is more, much more important than we think. Mm. Well, I love that Epicurus was actually vegetarian because then it keeps us from uh, taking it too literally that uh, it's about uh, taking pleasure in this rich, uh, f- complicated food or whatever, that we can look at it more as food for the soul. And uh, I think that's yes, something that pleasure. you, yeah, go ahead. Well, it's pleasure, but it doesn't have to be excessive. People right away think hedonism when you use the word pleasure. Right. It's unfortunate because pleasure is so important. Um, I gave a lecture in London once called Voluptas, which is a Latin word for pleasure, and one of the uh, one of the great one of the minor goddesses of Aphrodite, you know, around Aphrodite. This is so important, as we were saying before about Aphrodite being important. Pleasure is part of that. Mm. Well, um, I hope people have received some pleasure from this conversation. I know it's been food for my soul, and so I want to thank you again and for being so generous with your time and. Uh, continuing to write books that that can guide us you know i'll do my best if i if i could be so bold as i was listening to your latest book i had the idea that boy i would really love it if <laughs> if thomas could write a book of like teaching stories or therapeutic myths that offers um, some of these mythological stories, because, you know, I do think it's really helpful to have a background in Greek mythology, but there's never been, as far as I know, an anthology of myths that are um, put in relation to life and life's difficulties, you know, and I would, if I could have some kind of anthology like that, of like these teaching stories or therapeutic myths, I think that would be so uh, helpful to us. Mm. Well, thank you for that idea. I, I, I will really take it seriously. I will say that the next book on my, that's finished. It's already finished, been finished for months and months wow. in my in my desk somewhere, is called Tales of Emptiness. So what I've done there is taken stories uh, from around the world of emptiness. They, the, there are these stories that just like about an empty pot or about someone not showing up or uh, Oscar Wilde has an empty plate of sand- should have sandwiches on it. There are all these stories of emptiness from around the world. And what I've done is taken them and try to show how each one points to a certain truth about 
the way we live, that we need that kind of emptiness. I can imagine something similar in mythology. Mm. Okay, well, I'll just plant that seed and... Uh... <laughs> okay, good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks again, I've Tom. I've some before where people said, why don't you do this? And I, I went ahead and did it. Sat right down and did it. Yeah, well, look, if I can count on anyone to produce another book on mythology and therapy <laughs> and soul, it's you. You just uh, have an in, endless amount of energy for this. It's amazing. I do. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, uh, thank you. I, I, Brian, I appreciate it very much. It's so easy to talk to you. Uh, you know, you know, you know what we're talking about. That's so nice. And have a nice uh, accepting and open way of talking. So I appreciate it. Oh, great. Maybe we can do it when the next book comes out. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Take care. Okay. Bye. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory. Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, aka Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path Tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sunshine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path.
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.